You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Molly Katzen is the creator of the Moosewood Cookbook. She also writes cookbooks for children, including Salad People, Pretend Soup, and Honest Pretzels. Her new book is The Vegetable Dishes I Can't Live Without. Michael Pollan is the author of The Omnivore's Dilemma, A Natural History of Four Meals. His new book is In Defense of Food, An Eater's Manifesto. Anne Velisis is a historian and the author of Discovering the Unknown Landscape, A History of America's Wetlands. Her new book is Kitchen Literacy, How We Lost Knowledge of Where Food Comes From and Why We Need to Get It Back. Thank you for joining me, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Well, that's uh, in part, I think, because what, what was once agriculture is now agribusiness, and we've lost the culture of the way we raise the food and the way we eat the food. That culture is no longer a part of that or, or less a part of it, they would like us. The, the, the businesses that are selling us the food would like us but to there, that. But there are important that. counter-trends too. Um, there is a, a, you know, a reawakened interest in knowing the kind of things that Anne was just talking about, about a meal. And you, you see it on restaurant menus all the time, which have become these narrative you know, genres that telling you, you know, that this was a day boat scallop uh, and you know, the, the provenance precisely where it came from and the breed of the animal. And all this information is... There is a, I think there's a real demand for it. And, and, you know, food was always a way to reconnect to the natural world when you had those kind of stories. And people want those stories. My, my worry is, though, that there will be an effort to simulate those stories. I mean, there's all sorts of feedlot beef in the market now that has a picture of a rancher with a, you know, great 10-gallon hat over this gorgeous ranch. And, you know, it's, it's, an, it, it's, a, it's not a true story. So we get these pastoral narratives that are fake. And, and, and so that, I think, will be the challenge in the future. We'll be sorting out the, uh, the fake provenance from the real provenance of food. And I think that we have to recognize that, um, you know, we're used to knowing food by brand name or by a quick label or a number. And what we really need to do is have a perhaps a deeper knowledge of food. We need to investigate the stories and we're so used to shopping and buying food quickly, cooking quickly, everything being so quick that we, we're we not accustomed to having that deeper questioning be part of what we do when it comes to food. But I think it's possible, and I think it's something that many more people are starting to do right now, shopping at farmer's yeah. markets, talking to the farmers, um, you know, going online and doing research. I mean, in, that, in some ways that sounds ridiculous, but it also has a way of... I think, deepening our experience of eating. And so um, I don't think it has to be onerous or daunting. It can be actually no, an adventure I, and a fascinating I agree. one. I think, it, it, I think people find it you know, very interesting and pleasurable. And not all the time, but, but sometimes. Right. And, um, and that's, not a, that's not a small thing. Molly, you have, are spending time now teaching children to cook. You have children's cookbooks. And I think this is a really interesting concept because what it does is bring back the importance of cooking as a part of our lives. And when you're a kid, you tend to think, and even as a teenager growing up, your tendency is to think what's important is get a job, you know, get married, get part of the society. But in, and that cooking is always something that is maybe happens in between those things. But if you're starting to teach kids early on how to cook, you can bring back the focus on the importance of it as a big part of our lives. 
One of the things that um, I've learned from teaching really small children, I'm talking two-and-a-half to five-year-olds, how to cook, is um, the process of cooking itself. We have such an issue about time in our culture, and it gets worse and worse. I mean, when I first started writing cookbooks, I didn't know anyone who was busy. It's people weren't busy. They might have been <laughs> other things, but busy they weren't. And so I'd write a recipe. It might take all day to cook, and nobody complained about it. And if, you know, if people had the attitude, well, I also lived in a fairly rural community, but if people didn't have an onion and they were broke, you know, I was like, well, I'll just plant one, and I can make this dish next year when the onion comes up. It's like, no, no, no big deal. And, and then people became more and more busy and more prone to double tasking. But I think that the busyness is really selective. So Because I don't know, and I, I will get to your question about the children, but I'm kind of going roundabout um, on purpose because it's a question of how we spend our time and what an activity really is. I don't know anyone who complains, um, gee, I wish I had more time to kind of cruise the internet, but gee, I'm just too busy to do that. People just do it. They'll just go online and Google everything they know or the the kind of um, work avoidance that people do with their computers is, it's it's a, an opportunity people, you know, take readily. But somehow, when it comes to certain activities like cooking, suddenly, oh, I have no time. Uh, it used to be and, that and they're embedded in that with the yeah, marketing. I mean, right. the marketing flatters our sense They've of been business. Taught, there yeah. are these amazing commercials that show yeah. these families, you know, and they're sped up, and you know, and there's no time for doing anything. And thank God, Dad shows up with a big bucket of KFC because otherwise they would have starved to death because they exactly. had so much going on in their lives. So yeah. we're we're flattered in the sense that we like yeah. being told we're busy because it makes us feel important. Exactly. And so even though we are busier, um, I, I think to a certain extent we've been sold a bill of goods about this. Really appreciate that. That is really true. Um, and it's not necessarily, I mean, we can make the time to cook. It used to be that the 60-minute gourmet in the New York Times, when Pierre Frenet yeah. used to write that, that was Scandal. considered, wow, that's a fast dinner. And now it's, and then it was 30 minutes. And now it's down to like 14 point, no, it's less. It's probably 12 minutes. It's anything more than that is too much time. And I also know from writing my recipes that my ingredient list can only be this long, because if it's four ingredients longer, people will just, they'll, they'll glaze over and they won't make it. Um, so to start with small children and have um, gardens at the preschools, which is happening more and more, and to allow cooking to be a process rather than a product for the kids is very, very important. Um, for a three-year-old, it makes so much more sense to focus on getting there than, I mean, on the, the road there than actually being there because many of them, for that, just, just stirring something, just watching dry ingredients um, meet the wet ingredients and become this other thing. Very often they'll describe it as stir it until it's all one color or until all the dry gets wet. The process of that is so exciting to them that it, it, it brings them into a sense of being in the moment with time. And their patience for cooking becomes more and more uh, enthusiastic and, and present. So there's that right in and of itself. There's the excitement of, of a three-and-a-half-year-old pulling um, a carrot from the garden or watching the zucchini over a few weeks emerge out of the blossom, that's their zucchini. The, the proprietary um, kind of relationship to the food gets really strong. And then cooking it is just the final touch. It begins with the process of, you know, growing the garden, pulling it from the garden, um, cutting it, which can be, you know, take hours with a, a safe, a child-safe knife. It's all fascinating to them. And the food literacy um, issue with urban kids can be a challenge if they don't have the gardens. Like one time we had, we were in a kindergarten and we polled the kids as to where they thought pizza came from. And they were, they, this was a good one, a good question. They were scratching their heads and they had a huddle and they conferred and then they came back and they said, we figured it out. It comes from the telephone. 
<laughs> and that was their logic. And we thought that was great, but then we took them up to the pizza farm, which used to exist in Northern California. The pizza farm was so good. They had a cow, and they had a wheat plant, um, and they had um, a tomato plant, and they had herbs. And this was the little area of the pizza farm where they grew the sauce, and this was where they got the cheese from the milk from the cow. It was it was a really adorable concept. Um, <laughs> I and like then that. The, the, the light bulbs were going off, but then the other thing that happens is people's, as I mentioned earlier, people's relationship to time gets kind of established culturally at a very early age. And one of the one of the most challenging things of our cooking project in this preschool was how long it took that same pizza to bake in the oven. And they put the pizza in the oven. They'd each make an individual pizza, and they'd wait for it to come out. They'd sit there. They'd sit on the floor next to the stove, look, um, trying to bide their time and um, waiting for it to come out and looking at the clock. So when the parents would come to pick them up that day, and they'd say, well, what did you cook today? And the kids would be so incredibly proud. They would say, we made pizza, and we waited for it. And they were <laughs> beaming with pride that they established this relationship with, with the process that included time. So it's a very um, holistic it really literally holistic experience for children, and it stays with them. You know, another another aspect of this, too, is that learning how to cook makes them much better eaters mm-hmm. um, because they're willing to try things that they cook that they would not try if you cooked for them. Because mm-hmm. kids are somewhat intimidated by sauces and transformations, and if they can actually see that, okay, this is something I recognize that's normal, that started into this dish and it added to this other thing that I recognize and is normal, and then the final product is then much much less mystified and more approachable. I mean, it's essentially how I've taught my son to, to eat, is by cooking with him, because he was just an awful, picky, picky eater. Um, another point that you, that you made me think about is that Oddly enough, as we as we tell ourselves we have so little time for cooking, we find a lot of time to watch cooking on television. Um, and that the rise of cooking shows at the same time that we're seeing the decline of cooking. I'm curious to know what you guys, how you guys explain that anomaly. Shopping at fine cooking stores and buy, yeah. redecorating kitchens and buying cookware and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, the kitchen has all gotten much well. more ambitious. Yeah, but they, people don't want to get their cookware dirty, so then they'll <laughs> go buy their bucket of KFC. Um, I, it's a real, it's a voyeuristic experience for. For a lot of people, they um, they'll sit and watch for hours, but they don't have time to cook. Yeah. But they'll feel somehow that they cooked, or or they'll be intimidated from cooking because think, the shows make it look very hard. I think that's part of it. I think people have a yearning to cook and a wish for time to cook. But I've had so many people tell me, I don't know how to cook. I don't know where to begin. And so I think the lack of having cooking in our culture, having it passed down, having it be something that families do. The loss of that really makes it hard for young people to start cooking. I have to tell you, Molly, that I learned to cook really in college with the, one of those original Moosewood cookbooks. And it was, you know, flipping through the pages, figuring it out. But when you're starting to learn how to cook, you know, and you don't have that background, it's, um, it's difficult. Of course, I think, there used to be people. home economics, right, right? in which school. We learned how to make which, baking powder biscuits. Which doesn't exist. And that was yeah. kind of... It was gendered and therefore was not politically correct. And, you know, so there was a sense in which feminism helped push food out of the the schools for a while. And now it's coming back in. And and, and luckily, boys don't seem to remember that this is a girl's thing because they see all these famous chefs who are men and they see their dads cooking a little bit more. And my son doesn't have any sense that it's particularly a gendered activity anymore. You know, Michael, those those food shows are really not about getting dinner on the table. They're not about your dinner or mine or anybody we know. There's some kind of a remove. So it's very much um, watching. um, It's it's very 
aspirational as opposed to inspirational. So mm-hmm. something we would know. Who's going to, you know, if they're spending 15 minutes making kind of some, a molded dome cake, it's mesmerizing, but it has very little to do with, with daily food and with sustenance. I, I think maybe that some of the appeal of those shows is what, based on what Anne talks about, our, our yearning for stories of food. We, we are not making our own stories for food, so we might as well just sit on the couch and watch somebody else make food for us <laughs> and, and enjoy that narrative as it unfolds. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I'd like to talk about maybe a little bit, Rick, is to go back just because I think that I've wrote about something that might be helpful is talking about this this moment of convenience and how did we become seduced by it. Because if you go back to the time when the food system was industrializing and these new products were being made, there was a tremendous amount of resistance and skepticism about these new products because cooking really was the province of women. And women really felt... Um, that that was their area of expertise, and they didn't like the idea of industrial incursion into their area of expertise. They didn't like the idea of food being made en masse. It was sort of repulsive. They didn't like the idea of food being made in factories. And so all these ideas that now we take for granted at first were very um, unpleasant and distasteful. And it took a long time. I mean, it took several generations. It took a legion of ad men, ad mostly ad men, um, to convince people that new attributes of food were important. Convenience in particular was a really hard sell because at first people thought it meant that it reflected poorly on the homemaker. And um, and so it really took lots of tricks, things like, um, you know, describing convenience as maid service. You know, a, a horde of maids in a factory created your food. So that makes it seem rather glamorous to have foods created in a factory for you, or the kinds of things you were talking about earlier. Scientists have developed this recipe, and it's taken them four years and $100,000 and all these degrees and test tubes and white jackets and everything that scientists have to create something that's better than what Mother has created um, for decades. So those kinds of ideas, um, I think, were really important in making this transformation. Of course, there were other things that happened as well during the time. Opportunities for women opened up. There were changes in the culture. But I think um, looking at some of these factors is really important to understand why now we were so comfortable with convenience and that we and we're so embracing of it, even though it has these other sides to it. And, and Michael, you talk about the the rise of scientism in in your book and in in the industrial food. Just as science advanced, we were able to do things to food that just couldn't have been done before, and that made the industrial uh, aspect of food possible. Well, we changed the rules too. There were certain regulations. Uh, one, one thing I was very surprised to learn when I was doing this research was that before 1973. If you wanted to change the identity of bread or yogurt or, you know, butter um, by making it low fat or substituting ingredients, you had to call it imitation uh, sour cream or, or butter or, or bread. You know, you couldn't have one of those modern 40-ingredient loaves of bread without using the word imitation on a label, which was the kiss of death. And the industry fought very hard in 73 to get this thrown out. With the help, by the way, of the American Heart Association and all these other groups who wanted to revolutionize the food supply to make it low fat. And so these things that we take for granted in our food were, were, were thought of as adulterants uh, for many, many years. And now they're accepted as improvements. And that, too, is a revolution in thinking about food, that, that um, you know, when yogurt has 20 ingredients, there's something wrong with it. it you know, it's a, it's a one-and-a-half-ingredient food. I mean, it's milk and a bacterial culture. Um, but now you read, you know, you read a go label. You'll be stunned at what they've managed to put in there. 
Um, and uh, but they don't have to call it imitation food. Stunned and frightened. That too. <laughs> As we move forward, we do have a, a a choice as to what to eat. And actually, some of the some of the science has yielded some some good stuff. The the inert gases in a salad pack that. That seems to be arguably a, uh, arguably better than <laughs> than wilted salad, uh, and, and but as we choose what to eat, this is a this is a very interesting question. You say that we suggest that we should eat food, but that most of what's available in the stores is not food. Well, not mo- I don't know if it's most, but a lot of food. Yeah, I mean it is. The, the the my advice for eating is very simple. I mean I, I I reduce it to seven words in this book: eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Uh, but eating food is a little easier said than done in this in this environment because there's a lot of what I call edible food-like substances like that you know ten ingredient yogurt. Um, so how so the question becomes how do you distinguish between real food and imitation food? Um, and so I I developed a bunch of rules that that should help you you know do that. Um, they're really simple. I mean one I one is you know don't eat anything your great grandmother wouldn't recognize as food. Um, I don't think she'd recognize that gogurt as as food. Um, you know, she would look at that tube and wonder how exactly you administer it to your body, or if, or if indeed you're supposed to. And uh, and then she'd look at the ingredients and be mystified. Um, another rule is, you know, shop the periphery of the supermarket. That's where the real food still is, by and large. Uh, although in the in the um, dairy section, you will find some fake foods. But you know, there's that's where the whole food tends to be: the the meat, the produce, the the fish, and it's in the middle of the store. It's those canyons of processed food where you really get into trouble. Um, and if you buy most of your food on the periphery, you're going to be all right. Um, I also suggest don't buy any foods that come in packages making health claims, which sounds a little counterintuitive, but in fact. To make a health claim on a package, you have to have a package to start. <laughs> and you also have to have a big marketing budget to go out and get the research proving that your, you know, your, your product has some amazing effect on, on heart disease or whatever it is. Um, you know, the healthiest food is the quietest food in the supermarket right now. It's in the produce section. And uh, so we shouldn't take that silence for uh, uh, a sign that that food has nothing important to say about health. And the noisiest food. Um, the one screaming the low cholesterol, low fat, high omega-3 is the most processed food. And, and those are the ones you should probably stay away from. Well, and also, as you point out, many of these so-called scientific claims are later proved to be completely erroneous, as in the, the, the lipid scare. And yeah, and the, there's still an obsession about cholesterol, that a low cholesterol food is, is a good thing. But the links between cholesterol in your diet and cholesterol in your in your blood are, are have always been tenuous and are now, you know, uh, I mean, eggs, for a great example, has been rehabilitated as a very healthful food. It, it used to be, you know, taking you were taking your life in your hands if you had a, you know, a couple of fried eggs for breakfast. Um, uh, so the the marketing claims are, are behind the science. Uh, they're always somewhat behind the science. And, and that's definitely true today. I mean, the uh, they're warning you off all sorts of things that if you talk to the scientists, you would learn and say, eh, it's not really a problem anymore. So uh, that's another reason that the health claims are, 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 really, are really dubious. 
We have a tradition in in this culture, especially in re- recent decades, of defining the health of a food by what is not in it, mm-hmm. so the, or the health of our diet by what's absent from it. And you know, so there was the low fat decade in the '80s, and that was the decade of snack wells, and that is the exact decade. But snack wells is when you don't eat the really good bakery cookie, but you'll buy the box of cookies and eat the whole darn thing because it has no fat in it, as if the fat calories were somehow more evil or would actually put literally put fat on you more than sugar calories would. And then there was, in, in the 90s, it was, uh, it was the low carb, it was the Atkins decade, where um, the carb was, had evil designs on you and was out to get you, and, and all carbohydrates were considered the same, and in and, and all due respect, uh, what little of it is due, to that original food pyramid, they had all the carbohydrates lumped together at the bottom. They had carrots in there with cornflakes, because all the carbs were considered culpable and all, you know, similar. So um, so it was like, leave the fat out or leave the carbs out. But, it, but there's been so little um, discussion about what a healthy diet actually means you put on your plate. What do you go out of your way to cook and eat and embrace and enjoy? It's, it's more about what are, we, what are we leaving out. It's more about the more depressing and, and deprivational your eating is, the healthier you'll be. And so the line in the sand in our um, modern American culture is that good food that uh, food that tastes good and is enjoyable is on one side of the firewall, um, but it'll make you ugly and unhealthy, and um, but but you'll enjoy it more right now. Or on the other side of the firewall is the food that's good for you, but it's dutiful and depressing and uh, grim and beige or gray. <laughs> so um, the, the the idea that we have to choose one or the other is uh, is something that I'm sure everybody here would really like to get rid of. One of the things I think that's really uh, the thing that I think is difficult to um, figure out how we solve, though, is that we really do have these two big food, I mean, two large food cultures happening in America. There's sort of the dominant fast food, um, eat high fat, salty foods. Um, and once, and then there's the other culture, which, of course, is the culture of shopping at farmer's markets, trying to eat foods that taste good, that are more fresh and flavorful. And that involve participation in yeah. them. Yes. Um, but in this other culture, it seems that once people are eating fast food and are eating processed foods, they really do, that their palates do become attuned to those types of foods and that it becomes difficult for them to make the migration to braised kale, let's say, or something like that, or vegetables. Um, and I think that's a really interesting conundrum. Of Yeah, I think it's a real problem. I mean, I think that there are kids for whom the Proustian moment will be the chicken McNugget, um, and that they and that that flavors and that smell is very specific and very tied up with their memories of childhood, and um, that the the level of salt that you get accustomed to, because most processed food is is the main taste is salt, because right. they're essentially needing to replace the the loss of of other more interesting tastes. Um, so I think that that does have an effect on on people's palate, and um, uh, and I think people have to learn to eat again and have been brought up on this kind of diet. Well, there's a, a famous science fiction novel from the 1950s. It's a satire of the advertising business called The Space Merchants. And in The Space Merchants, it's set in what would be our current day. Um, essentially, all the food that's sold is addictive, deliberately addictive, laced with drugs that addict you. And I think we're not far from that in, in the processed food world. Although, you know, if you're a food scientist making a processed food, you, you can push our buttons. I mean, we are hardwired to like salt fat and sweetness. And these are things that were very hard to get in nature. So that gorging yourself when you found it in nature wasn't such a bad thing. Um, For sweetness, you basically had honey. 
and if you were an American Indian, you had you know maple syrup, and you had ripe fruit, and and which was packaged with all these other very good things to eat. Um, but now that you can kind of rip those out of the context of Whole Foods and just kind of use it to seduce people, um, it is you know it's a real problem because because those things that were so precious in nature are so common now they're the cheapest thing in the in the food supply. And that does, um, I don't know if it's addictive per se. I mean, you know, watching children with sugar, you know, anyone who's had a kid and watched that thing, you do think, well, this is their drug, isn't it? And, um, um, but it, it does definitely raise uh, our threshold uh, and, and our expectation that food should be sweet. I mean, high fructose corn syrup is now in so many, you know, heretofore unsweetened foods um, because it, if you make it a little bit sweeter, we'll like it a little bit better. The other aspect of this is how much food we eat. And I thought one of the really interesting things in your book, Michael, was the the, the McGovern moment when he was forbidden from saying to eat less food. Well, that's a big part of this whole discussion we're having. Um, as soon as you label a food healthy, there is, as, as Molly was suggesting, a license to eat as much of it as you can possibly do because it's health food. Um, and, you know, that's a crazy idea. You can get, you know, too much of even a healthy food is not good for you. Um, but there was this moment in 1977 when McGovern was uh, putting out these standards having to do with uh, heart disease and food. And there was this perception there was an epidemic of heart disease and we're eating too much red meat. He issued a recommendation that we should eat less red meat. And the industry came down on him like a ton of bricks. In fact, he lost the next election because of the cattlemen in his state. So they, they, they ran back uh, and rewrote those recommendations. And they changed it to choose meats with uh, less saturated fat. So in other words, they put the imperative, right? It's, it's, it's eat more of something with less of this obscure, invisible nutrient that nobody really understood called saturated fats. Um, that simple advice, e- eating less red meat, you know, whatever the truth of the lipid hypothesis was probably not bad advice. I mean, we do we do know that eating a lot of red meat is it correlates with some you know bad health outcomes, but the the industry basically forbade anyone in the government from ever saying eat less of anything. You can say eat more of something healthy, but you can't say eat less of any actual food. You can say eat less of certain nutrients because no one understands that. Um, so we are in this, uh, that is the great taboo uh, of all food advice, eat less. And uh, Marian Nessel has you know, described this beautifully in, in food politics. Um, so the whole obsession with nutritional health and claims and everything is, it's, it's just where can you develop a new eat more message, which is what the industry constantly needs. And what you talk about, and I think what Molly gets at in her cookbooks, is the flexitarian diet. Mm-hmm. which is mostly vegetables but with some meat. And that's one of the things I liked about your recipes, Molly, is, and, and just the, your approach was that it's mostly vegetables because that's pretty much what we need and, and they're just chock full of flavor. But you can some meat is okay. You know, um, people ask me all the time if my vegetable cookbook is vegetarian. And my answer is sure. <laughs> of course, <laughs> fine, good, yes. But can are meat eaters allowed... To use it, the answer is sure, of course. You know, these these divisions, these these labels drive me a little bit crazy, um, because the 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 word vegetarian um, is mostly a negative statement about cons- consumption of meat. It doesn't really say anything about what a person is eating. It's just yet another um, a, a sort of grab for a nutritious way of eating that, but defining it by what it isn't, um, and. So as a result, there are many vegetarians, self-proclaimed or, you know, 
really um, orthodox non-meat eaters who perhaps never eat a single vegetable, ever. They just It's just about, you know, anything but meat. So um, the emphasis isn't really on where you get your higher protein choices. For me, I, I'm trying to get everybody's plate, regardless of whether they eat meat or not, filled at least 50% with vegetables. And then another chunk of what of the other 50%, I'd love to see some combination of whole grains and legumes on just about every plate. Then for the final touch, if it's strips of steak of a really well-raised, you know, healthy, grass-fed steak, great. If it's chicken, pasture-raised chicken, wonderful. If it's omelet, Terrific. It's, that's a very personal choice. That's, but that's the, like the final touch. If it's tofu, if it's tempeh, if it's seitan, that's all modular and negotiable. But I want to see all the plates colorful and uh, robust and filled with, with vegetables. Um, and it, it, it can be really a joyful thing to do. So, um, yes, I mean, it's not about whether or not you proclaim as a vegetarian or a vegan. It's just that it's, it's a great way to eat. And this gets us to diet as culture. And you you talk about this in, in your book, Michael, and I think it, it comes out of your book as well, Anne, that our culture is is where we should learn from our diet, not not from the scientists, not from the people who are trying to sell us our food, but maybe from, as you point out, my mom. Well, I do. I think uh, tradition has a, a great deal to teach. You know, we, we, we knew how to eat well and kept ourselves healthy long before we knew what an antioxidant was. Um, we, don't need, we don't need to know what an antioxidant is. Nobody really knows what an antioxidant is except the scientists. And they'll probably change their mind about it at any, any point. Um, but we, you know, if we look at the diets of, of, of the traditional diets of people all around the world, one of the things that's striking is how various they are. People have been healthy on all meat diets. The Maasai, you know, are, are paragons of health on, on, you know, cattle blood, cattle meat, and milk. Very few vegetables. Um, the, the Inuit with their, you know, their blubber diets and their, their seal fat. Um, the, uh, and then you have people, you know, eating corn and beans very healthily. Um, the, the human body is clearly adapted to a great many different ways of eating. The one exception appears to be the Western diet, the one we all happen to be eating, <laughs> which, you know, we, we now know we're very poorly adapted to and it makes us sick. Um, so that, you know, we can go back to this traditional wisdom uh, and, and find, you know, a, a great many different ways to eat. There's not a, a, a single simple prescription. Um, but we do know in general that, um, uh, you know, we eat much more than people on, on traditional diets, given our amount of exercise, um, that we eat a whole lot of red meat and processed meats, um, and that we eat highly processed food. And that is, that, that is, when you look at the problems that began with the Western diet beginning around 1900 and a few years before, it was really when refined grain comes into the marketplace, which happens in the 1860s, I guess, 1870s, um, you know, white, white flour, um, and, uh, and the beginning of what was called store food, a food that was designed to be stored a long time and sit on a shelf, uh, that we really get into to many of the health problems around food that we have. Um, the great thing today, though, is that we, we don't have to eat this way, um, that we're not trapped in the Western diet, um, and that there are alternatives. And, you know, I talk a lot about local food and the farmer's market and CSAs and all, you know, this manifesto of mine would have been the manifesto of a crackpot just 40 years ago. You would have had to, like, you know, go back to the land, grow all your own food, cook all your own food. 
And um, now we can leave the Western diet without leaving civilization um, increasingly. So we live in a time of, of, you know, much more choice than we had 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, one of the, the figures that you talk about is Albert Howard. And we really have the ability to – he had a – was really quite a visionary in this matter, uh, in the godfather in sense of organic food. Yeah. He was an English uh, agronomist and uh, spent a lot of time in India looking at uh, traditional diets and also traditional ways of growing food. And he put forward this idea that was obvious to everybody then but seemed quite radical a few years later, which is that the health of the soil and the health of the plants and the health of the people or the animals that ate those plants were all linked. And if you were growing in, in depleted soils, um, the animals wouldn't, uh, whether it was grass or, or, or food for people, it would have an effect. And lo and behold, the science is catching up to that hypothesis. And we are learning increasingly that, that foods grown in well-grown soils and animals that eat from well-grown soil, uh, well-tended well soil, um, are, have much more um, uh, nutritional food. Um, and that there is a continuity and that, the, this, as he said, the subject of health and soil, uh, plant, animal, and man is one great subject. Uh, and that is indeed turning out to be the case. We've been speaking with Michael Pollan, Molly Katzen, and Ann Velisis about food. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Thanks, Rick. Rick. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.